Let's read God's word. Daniel chapter one is where we are. We're gonna read the entire chapter. So stretch your legs, but also give a, give a hearance to the word of God. It said this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people in Israel, both of the royal family of the nobility, used without blemish and of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them with the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the units gave them their names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, and therefore he asked the king or the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight uh, in the, excuse me, in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of, of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward who took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, this is at the end of the three years, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year. Of King Cyrus. Then sends the reading of God's holy, reliable word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. Well, we're starting a new series this morning that will take us through the whole of the fall um, for the most part. Simply entitled Countercultural Living. Countercultural Living. And it is, we're going to be looking at two books as a part of this series Daniel and Habakkuk. And these were part of what were called the exilic books. These are books written to or soon after the season and time in which the people of God had been removed from Jerusalem and from Israel and were taken into exile, essentially, in some ways, the slavery. And so they're no longer living in a uh, theocracy. They're no longer living uh, in their, their land that God has given them. Instead, they're living in an, another 
country's land. They are ruled by another foreign power, and they are now aliens in a foreign land. Aliens in a foreign land. That's how some of you feel, and you never moved out of the United States. So many of the cultural mores that you had believed uh, in our culture and our, our society had roots in biblical Christianity are now gone. So many of the cultural expressions of Christianity that were once not only acceptable, but looked on with honor, even those things, those people who did not profess faith in Jesus shared broad views of sexuality and marriage and gender and gender roles on many other moral and ethical issues they had in common with the, the biblical ethics. But now, not only have those ethics been dropped, but those who hold to biblical ethics are looked at with scorn. Where there was once easy acceptance of Christians and Christian presuppositions and key cultural institutions, such as in the arts or in the academy, not only do people find that they are not accepted in what they believe there, but in those institutions, that those institutions are downright antagonistic to Christianity. Did you know this? That homosexuality was legalized in our country only eight years ago? Eight years ago. But by the time, by 2019, June was dubbed Pride Month as the new holy festival in our cultural calendar. But the most significant companies in our cultural landscape not only took that, but then they said, hey, everybody has to celebrate this. And they put rainbows on everything. And they, they fired or ostracized those who wouldn't bow the knee to the rainbow idol. Taylor Swift took the opportunity in 2019 to release a song where she castigated opponents of any form of sexual expression that they didn't like. In the music video that was created for it, she's seen displaying those who hold anything against those who are hold an LGBTQ lifestyle as being toothless hayseeds who live in trailer parks and described as holding medieval views of sexuality. Medieval views of sexuality, they were only legalized four years earlier in our country. This is how quickly things have changed. Now, I'm not here as a proponent for some delusional version of America as some city on a hill. But no matter what you consider about these changes, this much everyone would have to agree on. Things have changed. The culture around us has changed. The, the ground has shifted dramatically. Toto, we aren't in Kansas anymore. And so we must ask this question. As Christians living in a secular culture, what does it mean and what does it look like to be faithful? Where in the Bible might we find Christians who are living as distinct minorities, where we can see Christians who have sought to live faithfully even while those around them were antagonistic to their faith? Where can we find those who are seeking to be faithful exiles while they live in Babylon? Well, I give to you the book of Daniel. If you think things have changed here, culturally, just wait till you see the cultural shift that Daniel and his friends undergo. He went from Jerusalem where he was raised under the God-fearing, law-loving uh, reign of Josiah where he studied God's law, where he was being trained to worship God, to lead God's people, and was groomed for authority and leadership in Israel only to, within a few short years to be dragged off to a polytheistic culture that mocked Yahweh, despised God's people, and ruled them with a horrific iron fist. That's a bad couple years. That's quite the cultural shift. And that is the context of Daniel, but there is good news here. For those of us who are seeking, who might seek to learn from Daniel about what does it look to be faithful in exile, 
We find in Daniel, we could say that the, we could say from Daniel, like Frank Sinatra said about living in New York, if I can make it here, then I can make it anywhere. If you can be a Christian in Babylon, then you can be a Christian in 21st America. America. We're gonna learn something that happened 2,600 years ago. And the reason why we can learn from this book that was written 2,600 years ago is because while the main constant in all of history is that things change and that while America changes constantly around us and there's all sorts of tectonic shifts going on in our life, there is one thing that is unchanging and it is God himself. God is unchanging. And therefore, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so what he said and how he led his people 2,600 years ago, you can find great wealth and great help from it. God is unchanging across cultures and ages. And so what God said then and how his people lived faithfully then, we can apply to our life today. And so what do we learn about God? And how does that help us live in a countercultural, as a countercultural people in this age? And so here's what I want you to see. In the face of an ever-changing culture, God still is. God still is. I want you to see three things. God still is in control. Now, before we get to God's control, there is reason why we could have for despair. And there's great reason why the people of Israel and Daniel and his friends could have despair. The book of Daniel covers about a 70-year period from the year 605 B.C. uh, to about the 530 range uh, B.C. So it moves from larger numbers to smaller numbers moving towards uh, the birth of Christ, just so you understand numbers in history. So 605 to the 530s, and it covers about a 70-year history. And this is the 70-year history that is considered essentially to be the lowest years in Israelite history before the birth of Christ. These 70 years. And here's what happened. In in verse one, it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, Daniel only uses two words here to describe uh, Nebuchadnezzar's work of Babylon against Judah. He came and he besieged. Very simple, but it is one of those historical kind of understatements that must be written when the catastrophe is too great to be described. This is a little like saying Hitler visited and took Poland. Without, while leaving out the, he also slaughtered six million people while he was there. The intensity of what happens can be seen in Psalm 137. It gives an insight into the despair of God's people over what happens here when Babylon comes down upon them. In Psalm 137 verse one, it says this, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. The destruction of, of Jerusalem and Judah came in three waves. The first came in 605. This is probably when Daniel and his friends would have been taken This is when the best and the brightest were taken off for re-education in the hopes that that Nebuchadnezzar could train them to go back to lead Israel and Judah as his kind of his his lackeys there in that culture. And then they would be, they would take, Babylon took the beauty of the culture, all the art and some of the the temple artifacts and the, the tools for worship. And so that's what they did. And then eight years later, they came again in 597 because Israel rebelled. And this time, they would take the artisans of the culture. And then they would take the agriculture and the means to produce it. And then they would take the strongest and the most attractive men and women. And so by the waters of Babylon, they sat down and wept. But then again, Babylon came again 10 years later. And this time, they put a complete and utter end to the city. They tore down the temple. They crushed and pulverized the walls of Jerusalem. They slaughtered the old men. They raped and killed the women. 
and slaughter the children. The rest, those who were left, were those who were deemed worthy of a life of enslavement. And the rest of the country was marched off 700 miles into captivity. And so by the waters of Babylon, they wept. It was the most traumatic event in the whole of the New Old Testament history. This awful horror is enshrined in the scriptures with a whole book, memorialized in the sobbing, despairing poetry of a book we call Lamentations. It's in the Bible. But why did this happen? Events such as seemed utterly to contradict the faith of the people of Israel. Where was their God? Was he completely absent in this? When this catastrophe hits, and the answer of Daniel chapter one, verse two, right out of the gate is, no, he was there. The verse says this in verse two, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Who did it? Who was in control of this? This utter disaster for the people of Israel? God did it. God was in control. Lesson one for living in Babylon and living in exile for God's people is this, is that God is in charge even in the things that appear to be completely outside of his control. He is still in charge. He is in control. Now listen, God being involved in this and allowing it or ordaining it has its own troubles and questions, does it not? But right out of the gate, Daniel wants his readers to understand this, that when the people of God and the people of Israel are exiled to Babylon, not one thing happened that God was not providentially in control of. In fact, God actually told them for a long time that this is what he would do. He'd been saying from the very beginning, listen, if you're not faithful to me, if you whore after other gods, if you intermarry with other nations, then I'm gonna send you into exile. You're gonna be controlled and ruled by other peoples. This is what's gonna happen. And then he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to say, hey, it's coming, hey, it's coming. And finally it came. And in this God, is not, he has not lost control. He is very much in control of the situation. God has told them that this would happen. He says in Jeremiah 29, verse four, he says it again, that the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God did this. The exile did not take God by surprise and the events that were swirling around were not beyond his control. Now the Bible consistently pairs together two truths that God is sovereign, meaning he has the right to be in charge, and he is in charge, and that he is good, and that he is good. To know the sovereignty of God is to know that God is always at work, no matter how dark it gets in our country. He's at work. God is always at working out his sovereign plan for the advance of his kingdom and for the ultimate good of his people. He is always at work. He is the primary mover. Now, I I don't think... Understand this, and this is kind of the problem that we have with this. God does not often deign to tell us why he is doing what he's doing. He does it, and he didn't ask your opinion. He he hasn't told you what strategy that he is employing. We say, well, if only I knew why God had let this sorrow and this suffering or these horrible things happen in my society and my culture and the breakdown of the family and all these things, but that ruins the point. The point is for you to learn how to trust him and to return to him. Look at the history of the Bible. God is always at work. He is sovereign, but in it, he allows adversity and hardship and disease and pain and darkness and violation. He allows it and he uses it for his good and for the glory and the furtherance of his kingdom. And we often don't know why or even how. 
And you probably still have questions about God's goodness in the face of such horrors that Israel would have experienced. But I do want you to see that while God often doesn't give us answers for those specific acts of violence that the people of God endure, we can see that God is willing. God is willing. He is a humble God, and he is a God who walks with, it, with us in it. The rest of verse 2 says this, The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God were taken. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This was Nebuchadnezzar's way of denigrating the God of Israel. The things, these things were set apart for the temple worship. These things were set apart for the worship of God, of Yahweh, not for the worship of other gods. And there is no doubt how the media would have, would have twisted this in that day. The media that day would have said this, <laughs> look, look at Yahweh's people. They are weak and feckless. And look, the very things that were used to worship that God have been taken to now worship Marduk. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We love Marduk. That's what they sang. And so they would have said, this, this Lord is the Lord of losers. And so he is a loser as well. And so the Lord allows here that yes, while he is disciplining his people, and yes, in his sovereignty, he is allowing awful things in his discipline to happen to his people. He is a God who goes right along with his people, that his name is run through the dirt and it is defiled and degraded just like the people of God. He shows a God who is willing to suffer shame if it might awaken people to their danger and their need to turn back to him. And this is the whisper of the cross, is it not? But and then very, even there in Daniel, God is saying, I am willing to come in and to be spat upon and to have my name run through the dirt and have myself made naked and to be beaten and to be exposed and shamed before the world so that I may win people to faith in me. This is the heart of our God. People of God, we do not have hearts of despair. And we, we can, there are many reasons to be discouraged in Babylon, but we are not to despair because God, God is in control. And he is with us. And he is, in the, he is with us on this day and in this hour. And he has put us as his church, yes, maybe in a culture that wants nothing to do with him, but this is not a matter of chance. And so if we're gonna live and thrive in an increasingly pluralistic and secular culture, then we must have confidence that God is with us and that he is in control and he is on the throne, even if we don't like the things that his reign and his rule is bringing about. And therefore, if I could call us to do this as a very specific application, God's people are not to be known for whining. We are not to be cultural whiners. We are not to be cultural whiners. We are not to be people who gather together with our friends and the vast majority of our conversation is about how stupid the government is and about the rich men north of Richmond and however it is that we want to phrase it. That is not what God's people are called to do. God's people have a mission here in this world. And by the way, it's the same mission God has always given us. And that's point two. God is still in control. And God is still on mission. His mission, he has not put it down. And so instead of spending our time whining about the governor, about targets, we become a people on mission in Babylon. Why? Because God is still on mission. God is still on mission. He's given us something to do. Daniel and his dudes are taken off. And they're put in Babylonian University, a training system. At this point, understand what Babylon is seeking to do. It is just like our culture seeks to do. It is seeking to train them 
in the ways of their world, in very specific ways. Here's what they do. First, they put them through an educational system. They're training them, so they may train them in the arts and the literature and the history of Babylon and the Chaldeans, and their, what their hope is that they can send back these young men back into Israel as their lackey leaders, as their quislings, or to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court to advise him how he can best rule over Israel. And in order to do that, they engage in a re-education program. And so they would learn Sumerian and Akkadian. They would study the literature of Babylon, the myths and the astronomies, the mathematics and the medicine. They would know all the omen texts. There were all these, the archaeologists have found all these omen texts from Babylon about seeing good and evil in the stars and in dreams. But not only did they, were they kind of essentially tried, they sought to brainwash them, but they also received new identities. They gave each of these men new names. And those new names were not just random. It wasn't taking it from a biblical name like John and calling a kid Bryce, like we do, right? No, they took, they took names that referred specifically and had connections to Yahweh. All the names of those four men had something that connected them to God. And they gave them names that were, were connected to one of the various Babylonian gods. They changed their names and their identity. But in the midst of being utterly inundated with the things of Babylon, what I want you to see is that Daniel and his dudes are incredibly wise in remaining faithful to God and to his purposes. And what do they do in order to remain on mission? They do two things. Here's what I want you to see. First, Daniel stays on mission by resolving to not be defiled by the culture. He resolves not to be defiled. Daniel, verse 8, 1 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow himself not to defile himself. Now, why does Daniel put his foot down here? This seems like an odd place to, you know, a, a steak and wine. That's an odd spot to put your foot down. Why not the, hey, you renamed me in connection to another God? Or, hey, I don't want to learn about all of your bizarre omens, about dreams and the stars. No, he puts his foot down about food. Well, there's a lot of theories about this. Maybe it was because this food was sacrificed to idols, but the vegetables that Daniel wanted to eat would have been sacrificed to idols as well. It could have been, well, there's Old Testament laws that were against these foods, but not necessarily. Many of the things that they would have ate, in particular wine, which he specifically says he won't drink, that is not forbidden in God's Old Testament law. But some think, oh, well, he, he, he shouldn't take part of the king's table because that would be to, to make connections and relationship and say, I, I give my allegiance to the king. But there are many people who eat at the king's table. So the text forces us to remain really general here and to only take it very specifically as to what it says. What does it say? Daniel says, I will not defile myself. And that is the application for us. But he says, in some way, shape, or form, for some reason, the food, he's saying, this defiles me. While he put his foot down there, I don't know. But the application for us is this. There is an issue, and there is this question. What are you doing in order to say, the culture can come this far into my life and no further? and in which I have put my foot down, and this is as far as it will go. That I will remain unique and holy in some way. I will not allow myself to go the way of the world. In history, the way the churches usually respond to the cultural shifts around us, one of the primary ways in which we have dealt with this is by utter assimilation. We look nothing different than the rest of the world around us. 
And but Daniel here, he refuses to be owned. In other words, you must resolve that you will not be swallowed up by Babylon and absorbed into the culture so that there is something distinct and holy and good and different about you. And so you must choose what that will be. Who will be your master? You must draw a line in the sand. Babylon will not have me, you must say. It will not have my soul and will not have my heart. Yes, it may have my studies. They may even give me a new name. But there's somewhere I'm going to say, nope, I'm unique and different. And I serve somebody else. And so I ask you, are you determined not to be bought, to be compromised and absorbed into the culture? If you don't keep this as a passion in your fight, then you will be absorbed. You will be. It is... It is far more subtle and even far more seductive than the ways of Babylon, the way our world works. Now understand that as you do that, as you find your place of wisdom and determining where you will remain distinct and holy, you do so trusting in the provision of God. God is working behind the scenes constantly here. Verse 9, verse 17, verse 2, it uses the word God gave. God gave them into Babylon. Then it says in verse 9, God gave them incredible gifts and abilities. And God gave them health while eating only vegetables. God is at work and he gives Daniel favor and Daniel trusts that. And therefore, because he trusts God, he can move forward in holiness with wisdom and humility. Now that is really important. There is something, Daniel is willing to not simply just push off everything in the culture. He's willing to be trained. He's willing to take on a new name. There's some things he will accept and there's some things he won't accept. He has wisdom. And notice how did Daniel handle this when he decided to put his foot down? Does he kind of take up a stance that is pompous and arrogant and belligerent? No, he is gracious and he's humble. And he goes to the chief eunuch and he says, hey, we would like to remain distinct in this way. And what is he told? He's told no. He has favor by the unit, but he's told no. And so what does Daniel do? Does he throw a, a moral hissy fit? No. He then goes around. He's like, how can I get around this? How can I make this work for you, chief eunuch? Wisdom, gentle as a dove and shrewd as a serpent. Ralph Davis, who's about 80 years old, but he wrote the best commentary I have on Daniel. He said this, Daniel was not one of those people who believed that firmness of principle always involves acting stubborn and pig-headed. And yet, isn't this how the church is so often known in our culture? That when we put our foot down, one, we put it on everything, and then two, when we do, we do it with quite the attitude. How often are Christians offensively fearless rather than humbly bold and gently courageous. So with quietness and gentleness though, you must determine, you must determine, I will not be defiled. I will resolve. You must cling to something. John McCain tells the story of being a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Uh, in the final years of their, his imprisonment there, and then North Vietnamese uh, moved him uh, and, and some of his friends that he was cellmates with. It, for the first couple of years, they were in small cells with just three to four other cellmates. As the war came near to a conclusion and before they were sent back to the States, they were moved back into an area where there was about 30 or 40 prisoners in one room. And, and that actually brought a great sense of companionship and strength, he said. And McCain's cell uh, the, with these 30 or 40 men, there was a Navy commander he shares about named Mike Christian. 
And over time, Mike was gathering bits of pieces of red and white cloth from packages that came in and various things that they were able to gather in various places. And he, over time, he, took, he fashioned a needle out of a piece of bamboo and he, he shaped and, and sewed for himself an American flag inside of his pajamas that had been issued by, to him by the North Vietnamese. And each night... Mike would take his pajama shirt and he would open it up and he would hang it on the wall and he would lead those 30 or 40 men into the Pledge of Allegiance while looking at the flag on his pajamas. McCain said that during that time, this was the most important aspect of his life, that in the midst of years after years of suffering and persecution, that there was something that he needed to put his foot down, something that would give him resolve to keep going. Well, one night, one of the guards came in during the recitation of the Pledge of Allegiance and he found that, the, found that flag on that pajama and he ripped it down and he took Mike Christian and for hours he and the guards beat him over and over and over again. Well, that night, Mike Christian was thrown back into the cell and as they were getting ready for bed, the prisoners looked over and they saw Mike Christian down like kind of in a heap on the floor, kind of bowed down, but kind of crawling around again. And under one light bulb, they see his bloody face that was swollen and they see that Mike Christian was gathering up the leftover pieces from his pajama and those pieces of the American flag so that he could sew it up again. There's some place you have to say, I'm going to wave the flag of Jesus. I'm going to put my foot down somewhere. I belong to God. This is where I belong. But they didn't simply remain separate, though, did they? They actually served as well. Yeah. They did make themselves distinct. Yes, they did put their foot down, but they also did more than that. They served the culture. And this is what we have to hold in balance and intention, right? John says, be in the world, but not of the world. And so they were distinct from it, and yet they just chose to, to serve it. And I must be brief on this, but do you notice that the Lord blesses them, and he blesses them so that they may be able to do what? Serve Nebuchadnezzar. They serve Nebuchadnezzar in his court. They're not men who refuse to engage with the culture. Instead, they participate in the life of Babylon, doing their work with diligence. That yes, they remain distinct. Yes, they had their own gathering of people. Yes, they were different, but they also used their distinctiveness to serve the people around them. And so they worked hard and they gave labor. God blessed their work, but they worked hard. And they were considered 10 times better than all the other counselors in Babylon. God does not tell Daniel and his friends to say, the heck with it, let it all go to hell in a handbasket here in Babylon. No, God has them serve and work to bless, to bless the Babylonians. That's astonishing. But it shouldn't be. Because this has always been God's purpose for Israel. God's people were supposed to bless the world as God made them different. They were to care for the nations and to bless the nations so that all the nations of the earth came and said, who is this God that they serve? In other words, we are called to be a counterculture in Babylon. We are the people of God and we are called to live in Carrollton as an alternative city, as a city of justice and graciousness and goodness and to serve our city as the alternative city. And this is who God has called his people to be. In Genesis chapter 12, verse three, he says this to Abraham at the beginning of the people of Israel. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is their purpose. Go look at Psalm 72. 
Read that and reflect on what David is saying there. All the nations will come and see the justice and the goodness of our God and our King because we're so unique and so different and because of the ways that we have cared for the world. This was their calling. And God does not change their calling just because they're no longer in Israel. Just because they're in Babylon, their calling is actually the same. And so we go back to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse four, where God says, I've sent them into exile. He says, thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. But then what does he say? Pop it up. It says this, so you are to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat of their produce. You're to work and to labor in the midst of Babylon. Martin Luther King said this, if it falls to your lot to be a sweet sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music, sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and all the earth will have to pause and say, here lived the greatest sweet sweeper who swept his job so well. This should be the mark of the servants of God in a pagan world that we are not a people who are lazy, who are not giving up, that we don't give in, that we are not settling to simply get the job done and go back to our holy huddle so that we can just endure Babylon until we get to heaven. No, we know who our king is and we serve him while in the midst of Babylon. And so the point is Daniel and his friends become students of the culture while being servants of God and therefore they are not enslaved by the culture or absorbed into it, but they are different from it even as they serve it. And this is God's mission for us. And in so many ways, in this there is some mercy over the changing of our culture. Maybe we will look less assimilated now. Maybe things will get so bad that we will finally look different. Just maybe. Last one, one last thing. If you're engaged in this mission though and you're gonna keep hope, we need to know that God still holds the future. God's still in control. God still has a mission. And God still holds the future. And this is seen in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The end. End of prologue. You know, this little historical note to end the prologue of the book, just one of those things that readers, we would normally just glance over and close our Bibles and say, isn't that nice? Daniel lived a long life. That sounds harmless enough, doesn't it? Just a little historical footnote, but sounds like looks can be deceiving. And Daniel was there until the first year of Cyrus. Who was Cyrus? He was the king of Persia, and he began reigning in 539 BC. Nebuchadnezzar at that point had passed from the scene because, wouldn't you know it, kings tend to die. And what has happened to Babylon? It has fallen. To whom? To Cyrus and the Persians. And do you see mighty Babylon in verse one and two? This Babylon who over a 15 to 20 year period slaughters and rapes and destroys Israel. By verse 21, who is still there? The servant of God. And who is not? Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. I have a hunch the text is more than simply a historical footnote from Daniel. This text is a sort of a parable to say this. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God's people go on. Because God holds the future.
God has been saying this. Just while he's been prophesying that this, these awful things are gonna happen to Israel and to Jerusalem, he's also been telling them, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna save you and I'm gonna redeem you and I'm greater than all these kings. This is why he says this in Isaiah 40, who brings pride in the one who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted and scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So in verse 21, the hairy-chested macho of verses one and two, this brute of the world called Babylon is now in the mausoleum of history. It has gone down. While fragile Daniel, servant of the most high God, is still on his feet. And he will remain because our God remains. We will remain because our God remains. Further on in Isaiah, it says this. This is probably one of those passages you have up on your refrigerator but it's a good one to remember because for those who live in exile, have you not known and have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God? He doesn't change. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God gives power to his people, even as exiles. And how can we know in the 21st century that God is still unchanging, that God's kingdom and that God's people will endure? Because Jesus has won for us such a confidence. He secured the very future that Daniel longed to see by, and he secured it by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna read you just a, a, a harmony of various passages. It says this in Colossians 1, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in the United States of America. He's over those things. He created them. And all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Then chapter two, verse 15, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And then he says in Philippians two, therefore God has highly exalted that Jesus, that name, so that every name above, every, above the name above every name and the name of Jesus where every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Jesus himself says in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So don't be surprised that the world is shifting under, under your feet. But know this, I have overcome the world. This is what Jesus came to convince us of. Worldly rulers can mock and scheme, but God's people and God's covenant and God's kingdom, it will stand. And so the this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God hath willed to triumph through what? Through us, of all people. So God has given us staying power, staying power. Did you know we have that as a church, staying power? In 1954, there's a Braves baseball team, had two rookies on it. Two new rookies, one, one was named uh, James, Jim Greengrass. In their first game, they're playing in Cincinnati, it's these two rookies' first game in the majors. Jim Greengrass had four doubles. Now that's a good start. That's a good start. But you don't know the name Jim Greengrass. You know the name of the other rookie. 
That rookie that day went 0 for 5. But his name was Henry Aaron. And I think Henry Aaron had some staying power, don't you think? You see, in the midst of the kingdom of this world, there may be a moment in which it looks like something is greater and going to overwhelm us. But God has given us staying power. His kingdom is forever and his people are forever. That's why, that's why it says in the midst of all that lamenting and lamentations, in chapter 5, verse 19, it says this, but you, O Lord, reign forever and your throne endures to all generations. There may be a day in which you need to remember that. Talked about Jim Elliott last week. So we'll close with the story from Elizabeth Elliott. Elizabeth Elliott was widowed, I think four times maybe. She was like... Don't marry Elizabeth Elliot. You're going to die. She's dead now, so we don't have to worry about that. She went through like four husbands and they all died. No divorces, just death. But after her first, after her second husband, so her first husband is martyred in the woods of Ecuador. And then she gets married to a theologian named Addison Leach. And then Addison, after many, many years, died. But there was one thing that she mourned that was a comfort to her that she wrote about. She said there was one question that she had to ask herself over and over and over again. What things have not changed even though my husband has died? What things have not changed even though my husband has died? One might imagine Daniel's friends asking a similar question after being hauled off to Babylon, far from Judah, far from all that was near and dear to them. They may have wondered, what has not changed in our life now that we've been carted off to Babylon? There's one thing God didn't change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who are not full of fear and that we would not be a people who are full of whining, but that we would be a people who are full of mission. That, Lord, that we would be a people who, while we cannot see the ways in which you're moving and working right now. And Lord, I am dismayed. I do not want my children growing up in this. I don't like it. And I wish you would stop it. But Lord, I, 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 I am confident that you're working. And, um, and so I cling to your promises. And I cling to what your, your, your word says. That even when it appears that things are outside of your control... You're still in charge. So Lord, would you give us great courage from that? Courage to die, if so, if need be. Courage to stand and put our foot down where need be. Courage to be wise and to reach our city and to reach our culture. And that we would look with hope, with new eyes, to see what you're bringing about in the future. That you, at the end, Lord, we will stand and we will worship King Jesus. And may we look forward to that great day. Amen.